Pete Yost here for the Unbuild It podcast. We have two sponsors this week. First up is Aero Barrier, a new way to air seal homes. Aero Barrier uses a blower door to move non-toxic airborne sealant into all the nooks and crannies where air leaks occur in a building's shell. It's a completely performance-based air sealing system. You get to watch your blower door number drop as the sealant tightens up your building. This technology was first developed for sealing forced air duct systems. And when I heard that the same company was developing a system to seal homes, I was really skeptical. But I have watched highly skilled aerobarrier technicians prep a home and run the aerobarrier technology, and it is clear that both the technology and the installation are based on sound building science and a superior understandings of how buildings leak air. The Unbuild Podcast is proud to have Aerobarrier as a sponsor. Check out their air sealing system at www.aeroseal.com. Our next sponsor is Home Building Crossroads, an educational webinar series sponsored by Zip System Building Enclosures and Advantech Subfloor Assemblies, bringing the best speakers in the industry to discuss building science and help you walk away with real solutions to the building issues you're facing. Christine Williamson, president of Building Science Fight Club, will present her course, Airtight Done Right, on two dates in December, Tuesday, December 15th, and again on December 17th. Airtight Done Right highlights small design adjustments using standard materials that architects and builders can immediately make to improve air tightness and energy efficiency in residential design. For more information and to register, visit zipsystem.homebuildingcrossroads.com. Welcome to the Unbuild It podcast. I'm Jake Bruton. I'm joined today by Peter Yost and hey there. a guest that, that we're going to not introduce just yet. We're actually going to have a conversation about how we got to wanting to have our guest on today. Cool. How are you today, Peter? Excellent. It's a beautiful day in Vermont. How about you? Yeah, same here. It's fantastic in Columbia. I think the uh, high today might get to 90, uh, but it's not that late summer humidity, 90 degrees. It's that early spring humidity. Well, we're high of 75, so come visit us in Vermont, Jake. Okay. So uh, the reason we're being coy is because Peter and I actually came to this guest in what I thought was an interesting way. Uh, You guys know that Peter used to be with Building Green, and he and I were having a conversation about an article that that was on Building Green by Alex Wilson, and I think the updated version also has, uh, what's Paula's last name? Paula Melton. Melton. Mm -hmm. Uh, About transportation energy intensity of buildings now the first time peter said that to me i was just like yeah i'm I'm, this is one of those i'm gonna glaze over and not listen to what (laughs) peter says because that sentence is that title is uh is strong but the gist of that article is what year was that building built peter 2008 something like that is the the world's first lead platinum building right uh yeah, that, I don't know about 2008, but, but okay. yeah. It, but when that building was built, uh, the world's first lead platinum building, Building Green looked at that and went, okay, but they moved that building away from where the people that work in that building live, and they moved it so that everybody that works there has to drive, mm-hmm. or very little could actually get public transportation to it. And the idea that that building was uh, extremely energy efficiency and extremely well built is negated by the fact that everybody had to get into a gas guzzling car, get on the highway and drive to wherever they work. And this is important for our industry and our conversation, because Peter, both you and I have read uh, Bruce King's book lately, where he talks about it's too late. We all have to make a difference now in carbon impact. Mm -hmm. And his book focuses on construction and how making our buildings net zero carbon, not just net zero energy, has to happen now to reverse climate change and and what's going on in the world. And I thought that Bruce King conversation is great, but that, that carbon negative building doesn't matter if it's 50 miles from where you live. Yeah, and people aren't really talking about that. And, you know, we always talk about boundary conditions, like what's on the table and off the table. And um, when I was working at Building Green with Alex and Nadav, I would always get, you know, kind of irritated because they'd be constantly 
exploding the boundary conditions. Like, no, no, I want to focus. I want to, I want to look just at the building. And they would say, no, you can't do that because that's myopic. And, you know, when Alex was researching this article, we, no one really knew exactly where the transportation energy intensity of buildings stood compared to say operational energy or embodied energy of the building. So it was mm-hmm. kind of cool when he first picked up this topic because we're just we're just looking at bigger boundary conditions. And by the way, we're talking now soon with a guest whose expertise is way outside of our comfort area. Um, so we're going to really <laughs> give him a hard time, I guess. <laughs> well, let's let's go ahead and say welcome, Jeff Speck. Thank you. So happy to be here. And I absolutely hate it when people. Uh, read a bio and introduce anybody and uh having listened to you speak i think that i want you to introduce yourself and then we'll continue our conversation from there so take it away jeff well that's tough because i'm i don't want to brag and uh <laughs> we you know, want go ahead brag. my go bio ahead. my bio my bio is very as as every bio pretends to be written by someone else and it's completely <laughs> boastful <laughs> and lists every credential and everything else let's just say um i was trained as an architect uh uh, but ended up getting involved in, in urban design, um, which led to city planning. And um, so I've been a city planner now uh, with, with, with one, one break where I took four years and worked in the federal government as design director at the National Endowment for the Arts. But I've basically been a, a city planner now for about 25 years. Um, and I, uh, I was an early adherent to what uh, became known as the new urbanism, which was this idea that uh, we needed to um, completely reverse the pattern uh, of, of the way we built for the past 50 years, essentially a single-use sprawl, right, pods and mm-hmm. clusters. Um, so I was very early kind of on that, on that, uh, that bus and um, ended up writing some books about it. Uh, I wrote a book with my mentors and colleagues, Andre Stuani and Elizabeth Plater-Zyberg, called Suburban Nation, which was kind of one of the principal documents of the new urbanist movement. Um, and then I wrote a book more recently, um, 2012, it came out called Walkable City, which became quite popular and changed the conversation. I like to think changed the conversation nationally about um, both how we build new communities, but but even more so how we can make our cities uh, just better places. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I write and I, I, I lecture and I go around the world and the country and try to explain to people uh, how we've been building, really in the U.S. at least, we've been building places wrong for more than half a century, and we can do it the right way. Um, and I have a new book called Walkable City Rules, which is much more kind of a manual about how to get this stuff done. Oh, cool. But of course, I've always been interested in environmentalism, environmental building. Um, there's a huge overlap between that and what I do. And in Walkable City, I talk about the three, I've now expanded it to five, but I talk about the three main reasons why we need to make our cities and communities more walkable, um, which include economic reasons and epidemiological reasons. Um, But uh, the third category um, is uh, environmental reasons. And um, there's a lot of great writing, most of it quite recent, uh, about in fact, you can't be green without looking at the form of your your city itself. And and that's become a focus of, of my preaching around the world and and your uh uh teaching as well right i do some teaching but um uh mostly i try to uh, i try to spread the word to as many people as possible uh through lectures um and that's changed in the last four (laughs) months uh however uh usually uh every couple of weeks i'm giving a lecture somewhere to an audience of, of generalists you know to folks who aren't planners or studying planning or architecture, um, uh, you know, usually it's a community lecture. I might get 100, 200 people, sometimes more, um, trying people who want their communities to be more walkable. Gotcha. You did, uh, the only thing that disappoints me about the way you gave us your bio, Jeff, is uh, you left out the subtitles for walkable cities and walkable city rules, which are, make me giggle. Well, the, the subtitle for level. the subtitle for Suburban Nation was "The Rise of Sprawl and the Decline of the American Dream." Uh, the the walk, walkable city subtitle is, um, oh, uh, how how it was how downtown, how downtown can save can America, save America. One, one step, step at a time. 
at a time. Boom. And then uh, Walkable City <laughs> Rules is 101 Steps to Making Great Places or something like that. Better Places. Yep. <clears throat> so, yeah. So, I mean, the, I like the, that little hint. Those are those are fantastic. Yeah, I think you know, it's so important to find the right <laughs> title. <laughs> and I don't know if I did, but Walkable City. Walkable City, I think there's a lot to say about about that uh as a title but uh, the the main kind of intellectual step i've taken in my work and certainly everything i've done i learned from other folks but um i essentially renamed new urban so so what this reaction to sprawl this this um this attempt to both stop the the decanting and the disinvestment of our inner cities and the creation of new places that were um of single use and therefore entirely dependent upon the automobile. Um, when my mentors first did it, they called it neo-traditional urbanism, which of course turned off the liberals like me. Um, and then eventually it became a much more larger national conversation, which included the whole smart growth uh, you know, side of things. Uh, and we started calling it new, new urbanism. I think you know, a lot of us have just been calling it best practices in city planning or urban design for many years. But I started just calling it the walkable city and calling it the walkable city makes it just so more accessible to folks mm -hmm. and um, allows them to understand it better, communicate it with others better, um, allows me to sell it better. Um, but also, strangely, I found that, and, and I do this in my books, of course, when I outline what makes places more walkable and, and forced myself to create a formula for figuring that out, um, it then caused me to apply that formula when I do projects. And now when I do projects with the principal goal of making walkable places, I would say it's transformed a little bit uh, the design decisions I make when I view everything through that lens. It's a super um, uh, effective uh, kind of intellectual um, uh, uh, kind of orientation that allows me to do better planning, I think. Yeah. And so the way that I came to be familiar with your work I have an architect here locally that uh, we were complaining about downtown and we were complaining about the main road leading to downtown and the city wanting to widen it to four lanes to be able to bring more people in. And he said, oh, uh, you should read this book that came out a couple of years ago. And he told me about it. And, uh, and you know, as uh, with most people, when someone says you should read this book, your level of respect for that person weighs whether or not you read that book. And I felt like his motivation and my level of respect for him, I was like, okay, well, that's one that I actually am going to read. And so I got a copy of it probably 2015, 2016, and it changed a lot about the way that we thought about our business even. Uh, I decided then that we weren't going to, we were going to try really hard to not build any houses in uh, suburban neighborhoods that, you know, these neighborhoods that are annexed by the city but don't have any income outside of property tax that, that are draining the coffers. Uh, and it even took me to a point where my wife and I live five minutes or ten minutes outside of town. Uh, and Walking. we, yep. Well, the current. We'll, we'll talk about walkscore.com in a little bit, but okay. my current walk score at the, at the house that we're in right now is 17. And we are, uh, we're trying, we're, we're building a house right now. And we bought a house as an infill lot, as close to downtown as we could afford, mm -hmm. and as uh, close to our children's school as we could afford. And we're upping that walk score and we're moving closer to town right. because of the things, the ideas that are that take place in, in walkable cities. Awesome. You know, I get, I get letters from folks who say, uh, you know, thanks to your books, I've, I've, um, I've moved. And I get many more letters from people who say, thanks to your books, I hate where I live and I'm miserable now. <laughs> so I wanted to ask about the difference between a city and a town. Cause Jake, you said closer to town, but what's the population of, um, your city or town 120,000 people yeah what so like in vermont a big town or a small city is brattleboro which is 13,000 people that's because Seems the largest bigger. city in vermont is burlington at 63,000 yeah so 
Jeff, you know, when you think about, you know, walkable cities, do you do you include towns, small towns? Yeah, as part I think of that? the the biggest. Let me first ask Jake, where do you live? Columbia, Missouri. Okay, yeah, that's a that's a nice town or city. <laughs> uh, to answer your question, thank you. So, um, I think it's important uh, to to outline some terminology. Um, I make a, it's not a mistake, but there's a correction I have to make whenever I talk, which is I'm always talking about downtown. Mm-hmm. And people think I mean, naturally, the central business district or the most intense part of their city. But actually, when I talk about downtown and fixing downtown, because most of the stuff that I want, most of the places where actual walkability is truly possible, and we'll, we'll talk about what real walkability is, most of those places are um, are are, are downtown-ish. But that doesn't mean that they're the downtown of your city. It's essentially any neighborhood that's of mixed use. And except for very few uh, new urbanist communities that have been built in the past 20 or 30 years, almost all of those are places that, uh, that were born uh, before 1940 uh, and probably before 1930 and um, were uh, originally uh, principally areas of business. And that may have changed over, over time. But when I say downtown, and I'm probably going to say it a lot during this discussion, I mean those places of, of, of mixed use where there's both places to work uh, and places to live all in the same um, walkable framework. But uh, Peter, uh, to your question, it's really important to understand that it, because sometimes this becomes a people misunderstand it and it becomes a political discussion with all of the um, ramifications of suburban housewives and everything else, uh, a political discussion about city versus suburb, city versus town, town versus village. Mm-hmm. And it's important to draw a very clear line and say, actually, we're talking about whether or not a place has neighborhood structure. And what neighborhood structure means is um, uh, a compact form, uh, diversity of use, so mixed use, and walkability. Um, that can happen in a village, which is typically a, a neighborhood standing alone in the landscape. It can happen, happen in a town, which is a a collection of neighborhoods usually, or a city, which is a collection of neighborhoods that's grown up, right? And, or, you know, it could also, if we talk about form of governance, it could mean something else entirely. But um, when we say town, village, or city, we basically mean agglomerations of neighborhoods of that traditional mixed-use, walkable, uh, diverse, and and, uh, compact form. Um, And so, actually, there are plenty of walkable suburbs that are fantastic, right? I grew up in one, Belmont, Massachusetts, just next to Cambridge, Mass., once huh. part of Cambridge, Mass. My dad walked to work every day. I walked to school every day um, because it was pre-war, right? Um, and there are uh, plenty of unwalkable cities, uh, places that we know that, that um, uh, like, you know, Henderson, Nevada, or other places that are, that are cities with hundreds of thousands of people in them, yet no one ever uh, walks to anything. And so I think the principal distinction to make, and I, and I hate to boil it down to uh, a single you know, form of transportation, but the basic distinction to make is, are you dependent on the automobile for, for, for all of your daily needs or most of your daily needs? And the typical household in suburbia, according to the traffic generation manuals that the city planners have to use, that typical household generates 13 one-way trips per day. Wow. Now, that means someone's not making it home at night, but I guess that's an average. <laughs> right? Some homes are 12, some are 14. Um, but those are trips not just to work uh, and not just to school. You know, work probably for most people isn't walkable. School certainly should absolutely be walkable. For most people, it isn't. Um, but it's trips to the corner store to get cat food, right? It's trips to the doctor's office. Me, I walk five minutes to my doctor's office. I should say right now I live in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is a very close-in streetcar suburb uh, of Boston. It's actually surrounded on three sides by Boston. Um, so I'm living, I, I made the choice, I had the, 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 the luxury, you know, the, the, the luck um, to be able to pick where I want to live in the Boston area, and we live in Brookline, where um, it's, uh, you know, it's a town, but it's got a streetcar that runs straight into Boston. And so many of my daily needs, uh, almost all of them, in fact, um, as you would find in a denser city, uh, can be met on foot and by transit. Um, and of course, the more transit you have, the more likely you are to have a walkable place. Um, but the, the, the distinction really is whether you're depending on the automobile or not. As a, uh, I like to say, you know, the automobile should be an instrument of freedom, not a prosthetic device. 
And for most of Americans, 30% of whom don't drive, uh, they still rely on the, the, the automobile to get everywhere they're going. So that's really interesting because when my wife and I left uh, Maryland, we were living in Bowie, Maryland, which mm-hmm. was largely suburban. It was We lived in a Levittown community. Yeah. Um, I rode my bike 11 miles to the research center, but it was I was taking my life into my hands for about uh, eight about an eighth of the time in that 11 mile ride because uh, it wasn't set up for people to walk. In fact, you could not walk to the research center from my house. It would be illegal. Um, And on a bike, it was quasi legal. But we moved to Brattleboro, a town of 13. We chose the house so that it was less than a mile and a half to every single need we had. Hospital, dentist, doctor, grocery store, school, and where I worked. and it's funny because Alex Wilson, who's the founder of Building Green, lives in Dummerston, which is a seven to eight mile trip from downtown. So they ride their bikes a lot, but it's not really walkable. It, you know, uh, it would be tough. So I, I've always been interested in the differences between the walkable nature of towns versus cities versus suburbs and how to me there's a boundary condition again when we talk about transit and walking. Yeah. Well, I always say, you know, a walkable neighborhood doesn't need transit, but a walkable city Mm. uh, relies on it. Absolutely. Because if you don't connect the different walkable parts to each other, then uh, those people who have the choice and many don't, but those people who have the choice to live the walkable lifestyle will still buy a car and they'll drive among those walkable places and the more they drive, of course, the more those places shape themselves around people driving. Yep. And you end up with the sort of urban landscape in which um, uh, those who don't have a choice um, are forced to find a way to drive because, the, you know, the, the, the streets get wider, the, the walking gets worse, biking may not even be in the picture. And Jeff, would you say that the good transit system is dependent on a walkable city, but probably not the other way around. No, actually, it's it is it is the other way around. <laughs> oh, yeah, it depends. Sorry. I did I mean, say it, it backwards. It, you know, the one of the first things you learn in planning school, which I didn't go to, um, is that transportation systems beget settlement patterns, and uh, once you have a good settlement pattern, uh, that can then beget a better transportation system. But the the history of the growth of cities around the world and in the U.S. is um, you know, you look at the transportation system, whether it's a port that is collecting, you know, tall mast ships uh, to do commerce uh, or it's, you know, New York City, which also a port. But, you know, New York City has more subway stops than all the other subway stops in America put together. Hmm. That's why New York City is the most walkable, technically the most walkable location in the U.S. Um, the more transit you have, the more density you have. Um, it's an important distinction between uh, a nodal structure of city and a dispersed structure. And what's remarkable, uh, what's remarkable about the automobile for the first time, um, it, was the f- it was the first means of transportation really that was not nodal or linear. So you had, first you had ships, right, which collect in ports. Um, then you, which of course privileged the coast, but nothing else. <laughs> then you had um, uh, trains, heavy rail, with stops pretty far apart. And that's where you see the tremendous uh, structure of like the, you know, Metro North line outside of New York City and all those towns in Westchester, which it connects or um, San Francisco, for example, tremendous central business district, which which is like an asterisk with trains reaching out in different directions to Mm. communities uh, like Palo Alto. Um, And uh, actually, does it reach to Palo Alto? I think it does. I, I forget. I, I stayed in San Francisco. I believe it was in Palo Alto, got on a heavy rail train. And uh, yeah, it is. And came downtown to San Francisco. Um, but then you had streetcars. And, you know, every city in America that was more than 10,000 people had streetcars at one point. They're almost all gone. Um, built almost entirely by developers to give value to land. So the developers had property. It was outside of town. They wanted people to move to those properties and they built the streetcar line in order to get folks to have a convenient way to reach those places. And then, but anywhere that was along the streetcar, and I see this also in the Boston area, um, uh, the main streets that, the, or the, the main corridors that run out of Boston into different neighborhoods, 
are where the streetcars used to run. And so you may not have this nodal kind of asterisk type of city, but you have kind of a linear um, a commercial. If you know, for example, Matt, you, you may not know Boston that well, but if you know Mass Ave in Cambridge, it, that runs from Cambridge, from from Boston into Cambridge, out into Arlington, out into Lexington, it keeps going, and all yeah. the commercial is connect, collected along that. And then, of course, the densities increase as you as you approach from the countryside. The the densities increase the closer you get to that corridor, and so you have a city that looks more like a you know a box of spaghetti <laughs> or a piece of spaghetti with sauce around it. Um, and um, only with the automobile did did that. Did, did the whole landscape become equivalent? Anywhere you any anywhere you lay a, th- a thin strip of asphalt becomes just as reachable Accessible. as anywhere else, and that meant that uh, the communities could take this newly dispersed form, um, where there was no reason to densify and no reason actually to, to to create that sort of propinquity, that density of people and activity, that has been shown to generate tremendous uh, economic activity. Um, and uh, you know production of patents and everything else. The denser you are, um, the more patents you generate per capita. There's all this great data like that that shows there's tons of reasons why we come together um, at higher densities. But the one that made it necessary was a transportation system, which has now been replaced. Jake, I just learned two weeks ago that Brattleboro had a streetcar, and I was totally shocked because of that there there were probably only ten thousand people. How, why did they set up a streetcar? And Jeff, you just confirmed that that was the way that you developed land outside of town, basically? Was yeah, and they were almost all, uh, they were for-profit and almost all developers. Um, the, you know, the original, the original um, heavy rail subway lines you find in cities like New York and Boston were also created for, by, by private companies, um, but uh, initially. Um, huh. But the, that was not so much developers as uh, you know, transportation um, investment. So I actually, uh, this seems like a good place to insert this. I, I love playing with walkscore.com. Uh, if you haven't been on walkscore.com, you can type in your address. There's a lot of information on there. It'll give you a walk score, a bike score. It'll give you time travel maps. So if you're thinking about buying a house and you're worried about your commute, it'll show you what you can get in 20 minutes or 20 minutes during rush hour. And so because I knew we were going to talk about this today, I played with uh, Jeff because I have your address and Peter's address. And I had a theory, and that theory was proven true, but also altered. So the house that I'm building for myself in Columbia, Missouri, close to downtown, has a walk score of 35 and a bike score of 48. I was a little disappointed in the bike score because our community for 20 years has tried really hard to... uh, to really encourage people to be on bikes and add bike lanes and bike trails and the the rail trails that went through town or the rails that went through town are now trails, all that. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it should have been higher. Peter, uh, your place in Brattleboro, Vermont, it was a walk score of 55 and a bike score of 27, Ouch. which I was a little surprised by as well. Yeah. But then Jeff, and I, I'm guessing you know <laughs> your scores already. Uh, it had a walking score of 88, a bike score of 67, and something that Peter and I didn't have, which is what we just talked about, you had a transit score of 67, and mm-hmm. neither of us even had a transit score at all. Right. And I was really kind of blown away by that, and then I thought of Age of City, just like you were saying. Well, my transit score should be higher because I can literally walk out the door 100 feet, hop on the green line. And uh, hmm. within half an hour, well, actually, within 15 minutes, I'm underground in Boston. And within half an hour, I'm at most of my destinations. Um, but, and in fact, 88 is great, of course. I'm, not, I'm surprised it's not higher. I think first thing to say is that, that walk score is generally reliable. Uh, however, the algorithm is, is crap. <laughs> the algorithm <laughs> happens to work. But the algorithm measures... <laughs> The algorithm measures uh, what stuff you're near, and that's the only okay. unless they've changed it. And last I spoke to the founders, they haven't changed it. Hmm. Um, it measures, you know, it has a list of stuff like supermarkets, restaurants, and everything else you proximity might want to proximity to libraries, schools, um, and it measures how many of those things are near you and how close they are. Um, and it almost always works because it turns out that how close you are to a mix of uses is a pretty good test as to whether you're living in the 
town model or the sprawl model. And I should say there are really only two tested ways to make community in the U.S. and pretty much around the world. I mean, there's a thousand ways to make a town, but there's only two ways that we've tested by the thousands, and those are the traditional neighborhood and sprawl. And basically, until the, the First World War, almost everything we built was a traditional neighborhood, um, a, as in mixed-use, walkable, and diverse. And then after that, almost everything we built wasn't, right? Um, so it just so happens that those places in America that have high walk scores are also pre-war. And therefore, and they have- car yeah, pre-car, and therefore they have the other stuff that actually makes a place walkable just by design. For example, is the street network um, uh, a delicate and porous capillary system of small blocks, or is it what we call a dendritic system, a branching system of a sparse hierarchy that runs from local street to collector to arterial to highway? Um, Hmm. That's something that came with the sprawl model, once we, once we began to presume the automobile was the principal way of getting around, um, the street network model fell by the wayside and was replaced by this dendritic branching network where every trip basically goes from the local to the collector to the arterial to the highway and back again. Um, and there really aren't the blocks. Are, are, if blocks exist at all, because there's lots of cul-de-sacs, um, they're quite large, uh, the, through, the through streets. Um, and in that model... Walking tends to make so little sense anyway because you have to go in kind of spirals. If you think about leaving the cul-de-sac, getting on the collector in the arterial to get to a friend's house on another cul-de-sac, a lot of the time you're going in the opposite direction of where you're where, – and biking seems kind of stupid too, but you're rolling so easily because biking is so marvelous um, that it might be okay, but um, that made walking go away. The great irony of, of this dendritic system is that it was designed entirely around automobiles, but it's worse for automobiles because there's only one path from anything to anything else. So let's say you have an engine fire on your collector road. Well, your whole city basically shuts down for an afternoon. Hmm. And we've also found that, uh, you know, because it's designed around its initial development pattern, so there's a certain number of, 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 of roads, and then people put houses and shopping centers and office parks and other things on these roads, that the city can't grow. It can't become any more dense, unlike our traditional cities, which have molted, you know, from wooden shacks to, to brick three-story buildings to, in many cases, you know, 50-story towers. Um, the block structure was able to handle those, those changes um, with grace, and they still function. Uh, but sprawl really can't grow up. As, as Andres Duani always says, it's, it's, it's doomed to permanently be wearing short pants because <laughs> it's this child of a city. Um, it's an inflexible and... and um, uh, not a healthy network, but but the thing the 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 um, the thing that dis, that's a little disappointing about walk score is that it could be so much more um, precise in terms of measuring the safety of walking along streets, the comfort of walking along streets, um, whether bike lanes and other things are present um, that make walking safer. Bike lanes make walking safer, um, and it doesn't. But it just happens to have lucked out to have found one variable that pretty much predicts all the others. So, but it's, go ahead, Peter. Sorry. I was just going to say when I was a kid and my grandparents were from uh, the Delmarva Peninsula, Chesapeake Bay, you'd mm-hmm. find 85 year old men and women on a bicycle, you know, going down the road. There's nobody in Brattleboro over 40 that rides a bike. And the difference is topography. You know, okay. the, 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 the place where my grandmother grew up was dead flat and Brattleboro is just full of hills. Now, I wanted to say, you know what's really changing that is electric bikes. E-bikes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You see these people, you know, on their bicycle, they look like the the witch from The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> right? Because Upright. the level of effort they're pedaling with doesn't match their speed. So it's like, right. no, 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 no. Yeah, um, and they've got a, a kidnapped dog in a basket. Yeah, exactly. But boy, it has totally changed. Now, the other thing I wanted to say, too, is the problem is winters. Like bicycling in, in Brattleboro in the winter it's dangerous enough in good weather to bike in Brattleboro, but it's really dangerous to bike during the winter. Yeah, I mean, so that, that aspect, uh, that seasonal aspect is, is not going to change much. Uh, but e-bikes are changing. Yeah. And, and, of course, the snowy days are really few, especially with climate change. But the, the, um, <laughs> uh, the e-bikes, I, I kind of resented e-bikes at first because I thought you had to work for it. Uh, and I was, was interested <laughs> in the... Um, the health aspects of biking around. And then I saw a study 
that demonstrated that people who use e-bikes get as much exercise as people who use regular bikes. Seriously. They just go further, they go further and faster, which ah. made me super happy. And then you go to China, and I was in Beijing a year and a half ago, and you see there's, there's actually this whole spectrum of bike, from plain old bike to e-bike to motorcycle, you know, there's, there's, and there's a, there's a point at which you have to say, you can't use the bike lane, right? Um, right, right. But, but it's tremendous. And of course, the Chinese delivery people in, in large American cities um, have brought that technology in places like New York, that, you know, de Blasio, who thinks he's green and isn't, um, was confiscating those bikes. And there's been a war on e-bikes. And I think, I think we need to draw the line between where the bike ends and the, the, the motorcycle hmm. starts. Um, but it's actually, in a term, you know, these forms of micro-mobility micro are so healthy for cities and so good for getting greater mobility at lower costs. Um, and more efficiency of space, which is what cities are all about, and why cars kill cities is the space that they, they need, uh, moving and parked. Uh, we can talk about that. But uh, I'm a huge fan of the e-bike. Hey, Jake, I wanted to ask, so in your work, Jeff, um, t can you tell us a little bit about where you think the pressure points are for change? Like, who are your clients um, how does that happen? Because J Jake and I have it easy because we work on individual buildings, yeah. right? And that's, that's actually complicated, but pretty easy working on a larger scale. I, I don't, I just don't understand how you do that and who your clients are. Well, um, my clients come from all over the spectrum and, uh, that's because city planning is a collaborative activity mm -hmm. that includes cities includes developers, uh, but includes citizens and activists. And so sometimes when I'm brought into a place, it's because of uh, grassroots folks who look more like you guys, <laughs> who are advocating for more bikeability, more walkability, more sustainable living, or for, for traffic safety, because often the way that most people intersect with city planning in a way that it could make their lives better or worse has to do with what the streets are like around their homes and the places they work and spend their time. Um, that's often folks who bring me in to advocate in communities. Hmm. When I'm working in communities, it may be for a city client or a developer client, but you know, the planning process these days is uh, necessarily a collaborative one because uh, if there are people who are against the project, the sooner you wrap them in, the less likely they are to derail the project. And of course, they can derail the project at the approvals stage where they show up in disproportionate numbers uh, as NIMBYs at, um, at hearings. Um, or they can sue it after it's passed. They can, after it's passed, they can sue it and slow it down for long enough to kill it. And that hmm. happens uh, very often. Um, and so... Uh, another way that planning has changed, the, the practice of planning has changed in the quarter century that I've been involved, um, not just from sprawl to back to town again, but from kind of private back room, smoke filled, you know, smoke filled room sessions to this out in the open public planning process that my mentors also popularized as the charrette. You may have probably heard this term, the planning sure. charrette, which yeah. actually it was Andres and Liz, my mentors, who turned that into a term of popular consumption where um, we're going to, and we did this, I did it at their firm for 10 years. Um, we're going to bring a whole team of planners to your town. We're going to stay there for a whole week. We're going to have open doors every day. We're going to have presentations every two days. Uh, we're going to have multiple feedback loops, um, and we're going to help you shape the community that's forming near you. Um, that's been the way that planning happens. So, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's almost unheard of these days that places get planned without a lot of public input. The challenge then has been to make that public input representative hmm. because what tends to happen is the only people who show up, the people who have the time to show up, right? The people who aren't working two, two shifts, the people who, mm. uh, who oh, care, yeah. <laughs> who care because it's going to impact their quality of life are the people who live immediately adjacent. And so the typical scenario and almost every project I'm working on is you have a project which uh, meets the planning goals of the city, uh, which acknowledges that the city, that, that everyone in the city agrees that we need more housing, that we need more affordability, that we need more transit-oriented development, that the, the city in its planning documents that were created through a very public and shared process acknowledges that it wants these things. 
and you come forward with a project that exactly epitomizes the stated and uh, you know affirmed planning goals of the city that's in its comprehensive plan, and 60% or more of the people who show up are fighting the project. Mm -hmm. Because yes, we want all those things, we just don't want them near us. <laughs> and the fact is that you know the NIMBY is, is a specialist in what's best for the, their backyard or front yard, uh, NIMFI. <laughs> um, but they, they, and they are acting in their own self-interest and often in their enlightened self-interest. Hmm. But if it's a tragedy of the common situation, if every neighborhood uh, gets what it wants, then the city doesn't get what it wants as a city. And by that, I mean the, 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 all the people. People right? as well. The, the, yeah. the, the polis. The polis does not get what the polis wants if each individual you know, subdivision next to a planning site uh, meets what its neighbors want. And so that's the classic, classic crisis in planning, which we, we try to, to work around um, you know, by more sophisticated techniques like uh, you know, interactive digital uh, polling. Um, but then you know, most developers I know use much more tried and tested techniques like um, going around the neighborhoods all the neighborhoods of the city and really working hard to convince people to show up at hearings mm -hmm. so that you get some sort of representative population. I, I can't imagine uh, uh, a job where public hearings are a regular part of my... <laughs> and they're always that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> well, it's a li I, I got to tell you, it's a little easier now uh, with COVID and Zoom because at least we can do it from our homes. Um, yeah. And, and people tend to be a little more civil... Interestingly, not sure why, they tend to be a little more civil, so far at least, on Zoom hearings than on uh, in public hearings. Oh, that's fascinating. Hey, just yeah. a real quick plug that you have on your website, uh, like a 15-minute video on uh, sort of uh, transportation and COVID, and particularly oh, yeah. about temporary blocking of streets and how it's done both officially and unofficially. That was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Well, that's the planning challenge that most communities are facing right now is a spatial crisis on our sidewalks, at yeah. least in downtown areas, where you have all these competing uh, interests. Uh, you have people walking who want to maintain six feet, should maintain mm -hmm. six foot distances. You have people waiting in line to get into stores. You have people doing restaurant pickup. You have restaurants that want to expand onto the sidewalk. Absolutely. You have uh, joggers who still are gonna jog. And you've got people who won't take public transportation who are actually trying out biking for the first time. And I've seen a lot of really bad bikers in my neighborhood recently who, because that's the way they get to work and they got a bike and now they're doing that. Um, and so there's a number of techniques that have been well-documented. And, and yes, at jeffspeck.com, J-E-F-F-S-P-E-C-K.com, you can find a video where I where I talk about that. The, the, there's techniques of of closing streets to cars so people have places to recreate, but more often um, it's about um, expanding sidewalks, particularly into four-lane roads that should be could be two-lane roads, uh, or removing the parking, or doing both, removing a lane of driving and a lane of parking. Um, in my hometown of Brookline, we've, we've um, taken the parking lane, pushed it into the outer travel lane, the outer driving lane, and widened our sidewalks into what was the parking lane, for example. But Maybe 500 cities and towns in the U.S. have done it so far, and it's it's a, a huge change that that's underway. Um, I also would call attention to people. You mentioned I thought you were going somewhere else. Um, on my website, there are two TED talks. Yeah. Uh, about yeah. the walkable city, and one is why the walkable city is so important, and the other is um, how to do it in your community. Uh, obviously, you won't learn how to do it entirely in 15 minutes, but um, those Close. two talks those two talks <laughs> together have been viewed like. Four million times, so um, uh, there are people like them, and and they're a great way to share this uh, conversation. But it's a fantastic introduction. And your video on the <coughs> COVID, just as a segue to what you're talking about hearings, that is a recording from a committee hearing, isn't it, Jeff? Yeah, the Boston City Council um, was trying to convince the mayor to become a leader mm -hmm. on this issue. He was dragging his feet. He says, "I'm just a car guy." even though he's quite progressive and, and uh, really wonderful mayor. Um, but he was um, really not, not focusing on this in a proactive way. Hmm. And the city council um, 
decided to hold a hearing and made it very clear they had a res they, they they passed a resolution that they were going to have a hearing on COVID safe streets, and I ended up being the the, the kickoff speaker. Um, but as things happen in city politics, the morning of the hearing, because the hearing was about to happen, the mayor sent out a tweet storm about how he was going to make COVID safe streets, and that was the beginning of a one. It worked, right? So now Fantastic. Boston, oh, Boston cool. is a leader. Uh, in in making this happen, and you may have seen in the North End the famous uh, Little Italy that we have in Boston, um, uh, Hanover Street. The parking has all been has all been replaced by uh, by dining, and certain some of the smaller side streets have been closed and have become outdoor restaurants, and they're quite beautiful. And people all over the country were tweeting this and saying, "This isn't Europe. This is Boston. We should do this," which was pretty yeah, cool. That, that's really cool. Downtown Brattleboro a couple of times has closed off the main street uh, mm-hmm. to, to to traffic. And it completely changes the nature of the downtown, and the merchants love it because yeah, people... it's a city by it's a city by city thing. And of course, this was a huge movement in the seventies uh, through sixties through eighties. Really, uh, more than two hundred main streets in the U.S. were closed, and of course, you know Burlington, Vermont's wonderful uh, yeah. main street, and there's uh, about twenty of them that are fantastic, and they're yeah. almost all in university towns or resort yeah. towns yeah. like yeah. Miami or uh, Madison or Boulder. Um, about 180 of them failed. And it's important to understand that and understand why. Um, Not to not do it. Cities should absolutely do it. Uh, But to do it the right way, which is how Jeanette Sadiq Khan introduced it to New York about five years ago, which is to to make it temporary and test it. And first you do it for a Saturday, then you do it for a weekend. Then if it's working, you just keep doing it, expand the hours. But what what we did in the 60s through the 80s was, and by we, I don't mean me, um, is very expensively with huge federal grants and state grants, um, you know, made it impossible to, to let cars into the streets and absolutely transformed, in many cases, main streets that were relying on people driving up and shopping um, mm-hmm. into places where nobody shopped and the place died. And so um, uh, absolutely we should be making parts of our city pedestrian only, um, but you need to do it cautiously and not slowly, but very quickly, but with tactical urbanism, you know, that's hmm. that's that's uh, reversible yeah. um, and just try it out. And it's amazing the degree to which cities aren't willing to just try things. And I'm always telling people, don't do a study because, you know, so much of the of the money spent in planning is doing studies. You know, and they always cost at least forty thousand um, dollars. Everything I propose, let's do a study. I'm like, no, don't do a study. Do a test. Hmm. Lay it out. You know, bring a police car in. See what happens. Don't study it. Test it for, for the cost of a of a patrol guy who's got to be out there anyway doing something. Well, Jake's going to laugh at this, but I love testing. <laughs> right? The, uh, yeah. <laughs> Peter Peter does his own testing. Same here. We uh, My uh, my favorite motto is trust but verify. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the bicycle thing that you were just talking about is is uh, it struck home. We're, we're within a couple months of moving, and my wife said, I'm going to replace my bicycle because we're going to ride our bikes a heck of a lot more at the new house. Yeah. And she uh, called the, the bike store that's closed because of COVID, and they said, yeah, three months before uh, we have another bike yeah. that fits. I've been hearing about that. Hey, can uh, we talk about um, where the real intersection is? And you hinted at it in our lead-in. Yeah. Uh, but the, the real intersection in our work um, is with this confusion about what makes a sustainable building. Perfect. And Good segue. Uh, in in Walkable City, I have this chapter called The Wrong Color Green. And like most of my writing, I learned most of it from, from other people. In this case, from David Owen, who you may know. He wrote a book called Green Metropolis. And David Owen's a, a New Yorker writer. He's just a great writer. Like Jane Jacobs, I say, a mere, a mere writer. Um, <laughs> and he um, just did a ton of research and wrote an incredibly uh, captivating and easy to read and fun to read book called Green metropolis and my chapter learned a ton from him um this is one thing i didn't learn from him however which is this idea of of location efficiency um and location efficiency you know the the epa for many years uh has had a community design uh branch um i'm not sure what its status is these days because it's you know it's not really the epa anymore but um the uh, idea of location efficiency and and uh, how something that we planners have been carping about for years, which is as you suggested, everyone looks at the building itself, but not where it's located and the 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 indirect, I guess you could say indirect, 
um, expenditure on energy and uh, the resultant pollution that happens when a building is located in a uh, strictly drivable location. And so I talk about this one uh, EPA study that was called Location Efficiency and Building Type, boiling it down to BTUs. Hmm. And uh, the study compared four factors. It was drivable versus walkable location, conventional construction versus green building, single family versus multifamily housing, and conventional versus hybrid automobiles. So, you know, are you driving a gas guzzler or a, or a hybrid? Um, it's clear that every factor counts, but the study showed that walkability was by far the most, the, the biggest impact on, on how much these buildings were contributing to, to climate change. Hmm. Specifically, in drivable locations, uh, it found that transport, transportation energy um, consistently tops household energy use. So, and often more than two to one or two and a half to one. So the, 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 the big takeaway for me was that the, the most green house, right, the greenest house with a Prius, you know, you got the solar panels, you got the Prius. Back then, when it was done, there weren't really all electric, which I'm sure has some impact. Um, but the greenest house with the Prius in sprawl still lost out, Yeah, was more, was more polluting than the least green home with a regular old gas guzzler in a walkable neighborhood. So, so um, there's nothing you can do to make your house more green than to have it be in a walkable neighborhood. And of course, uh, it's much better if it's an apartment versus a freestanding house um, for a number of reasons. One reason is, you know, in an apartment, you're heating and cooling your neighbor when the heat, when the hot and the cold escape your apartment, they're helping someone else as opposed to just going uh, uh, straight into the atmosphere. The other thing, and David Owen dwells on this in his book, is that we just live our life larger when we have more room. So it hmm. isn't it isn't just that we're driving to where we're where we live, um, but you know we're not parking the car in the garage. We're parking the car in the driveway, and we're filling the garage. This is this is now my line. We're filling the garage with um, all those things we need to buy uh, to make up for the fact that we have such a, a sad and anonymous life in the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the community we lack. The community that we lack by not being in a more urban location, we replace with toys. And our garage is full of, of toys that we need to entertain ourselves because we don't have that, um, those third places, that public, uh, public space and realm um, that people usually uh, enjoy before and after work, mostly after work. Um, but that we just live larger uh, when we have more space. We, we, we consume more. And of course, the the, the ways that the cities subsidize the suburbs in terms of, of, of the cost of sewage lines and the cost of, electri- of the electrical grid and the fact that and, and there's an amazing guy named Chuck Marone and the whole Strong Towns movement, and you should talk to him and go to strongtowns.org hmm. to learn about this. But he's an engineer who discovered some years ago that a house on a cul-de-sac just doesn't pay for itself in terms of taxes. I mean, just the paving of the road which has to happen every 20 or 30 years, the taxes from the, the houses over those 20 or 30 years isn't enough to pay just for that. Forget about schools and everything else. So we have this condition where uh, we've been subsidizing in so many ways the suburban experience to the detriment of our downtowns that, that are paying extra um, uh, that, you know, of course we've made the wrong choices about where to live because of, of the costs, costs associated with those choices. Wasn't there, there was a program, I don't know if it still exists, for location-efficient mortgages. Yes. That probably uh, used I, I that score. I haven't looked at it recently, but um, uh, banks would, would consider your location in giving you a mortgage, principally because they're looking at the back ratio of your debts. And, exactly. And uh, are you, yeah. are you, um, you going to be owing money not just on the house, but on other stuff like multiple automobiles? Yeah. And uh, very often, you know, a typical suburban house will have more automobile debt than real estate debt. Yeah. Very interesting. That's very interesting. Okay, so the long and short of it is we got to pick where we put our buildings in a more responsible manner, and we have to make well, our choices. The, yes, the, but the, also the long and short of it is, is that most Americans don't have the choice, right? I mean, most Americans um, are driving till they qualify is the term yeah. that we use. Mm-hmm. And that the, the, the way that we've organized our cities over time, the way that we've robbed robbed transit of investment, the way that we don't think twice about adding a lane to a road or adding 20 miles to a highway, um, has created a situation where the only affordable housing 
in many larger cities is uh, at a place which you can only drive to. And unfortunately, pe people make the choice about where to live based on the cost of the house, and they don't always factor in the cost of transportation. They don't always factor in the cost of the commute and mm -hmm. all the time that they're spending um, uh, getting to work and back and getting to other things and back. Um, even back in the 1970s, the intellectual multinational writer uh, Ivan Illich found out that if you, and he wrote about how if you add, and, and this was when people were spending half as much time driving, but if you added to the time of your commute the time that you spent working to buy the car and put gas in the car and pay the insurance in the car, we're basically moving around our cities at three to four miles an hour, uh, which is the speed of walking. <laughs> so, and I like to say in my lectures, you know, what we've accomplished between 1970 and now, when Ivan Illich was writing, is we basically doubled the, the miles of roadway in our country. And as a result, we've doubled the percentage of our income that we spend on transportation. Mm. So we used to spend a dime on the dollar on transportation back in the 70s. The typical American family now spends 20 cents on the dollar. Because we as a nation made the choice to tie transportation to the most inefficient, most expensive, uh, most wasteful uh, form of, of, uh, of transportation. So, um, uh, you know, the, the, the yes, as home builders, you and your audience should be focusing on more urban locations to give healthier, more sustainable, you know, lives to the people who are going to occupy those homes. But there's a much larger effort that needs to happen, which is happening, which is the local and, and regional advocacy for those things that make walkable settlements more possible and more attainable. And by the way, the number one thing, and the number, uh, many cities, many normal cities like Des Moines, for example, are doing this, is they are actively investing in bringing more attainable housing downtown. So if you want to convert a, uh, you know, an abandoned loft into a 100-unit apartment house in Des Moines, you get a 10-year tax abatement, and you get another 10 years of tax increment financing, and basically it, it means that you can provide units that people can afford. And then, of course, we're also getting rid of those ridiculous rules that make inner-city housing so expensive, like uh, apartment size minimums, which are nothing but exclusionary zoning you know, to keep things around rich people, and parking minimums. And that's Parking current, requirements. That's a huge uh, shift that's happening in some cities is lightening the parking requirements around uh, new construction, which can reduce the cost by 20-30%. Uh, and also bring, bring people there who self-select to walk around your neighborhood instead of driving around your neighborhood. Um, so there's all these moves afoot. Um, I would say we just need more... more uh, I've kind of given up on national leadership and, and even state leadership. Um, there's you know Our fundamental system of government with the way that campaigns are financed is fundamentally corrupt. It's what you know, 50 years ago would have been considered pure corruption, and now we've just kind of put it aside. But it means that we can't get real leadership at the at the federal level and very little at the state level. But at the local level, mayors and town meetings and, you know, selectmen are making um, good choices. And city by city, we're seeing a lot of positive changes happening. So on a positive note, Jeff, maybe to wrap up, is that your new book, which is about walkable city rules, that's more of a how-to for almost anybody, builder, community member, developer, to, to look at how to make change happen? Everything I write is for everybody. That's, my, uh, that's the niche I've chosen. But the, um, <laughs> the way I distinguish it is if you, if you want to understand, first of all, if you want to have a good, fun, nonfiction beach, beach read um, that will explain to you why walkability is so important and the basics of how to get it done, or if you want to convince other people, and that's mm -hmm. most of my audience is people convincing other people who are buying boxes of the book and distributing them, Walkable City is the book for that. Walkable City is, um, uh, is and I say this just quoting Planning Magazine, Walk Walkable City is the book for getting planning discussions to happen positively in your city. Mm -hmm. Walkable City Rules uh, was written for people who are doing the work. That mm -hmm. doesn't mean you're a professional. You could be an activist or, or someone just who cares about their street. Um, but it's 101 two-page rules with illustrations, graphs. Each rule, um, you know, like um, you know, a typical rule would be make parklets, which is a discussion of turning parking spaces into these little decks that people dine on. Um, 
you know, each rule is a, uh, you can lay it on the photocopy machine and, <laughs> and put it up and send it sure. to anyone you want, or better yet, scan it and send it to people in an email. Um, but it's, it, it breaks it down into a bunch of easy to take steps um, that actually give you measurements and other stuff uh, that allow you to, to get it done. Well, I think Jeff, Jeff qualifies as a real unbuild it cast yeah. member. I agree. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us on the podcast today. This is fantastic, Thanks, man. Jeff. I'm really happy. Well, that you can you thank my family for abandoning the cabin and leaving it to me. Yes. And let me know when it's out, and I'll share it with my audience. And, and uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Okay. Until next time, everybody check out all three of Jeff's books. Uh, check out the TED Talks that Peter noted. And I am going to go to Jeff's website and look at the, uh, the COVID video now. Thank you, guys. Uh, We'll see you again soon. Thanks.